What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stamp, thank you so much for tuning in. If you think about it, the only person we spend our entire lives with is ourselves. And yet, the person we understand least is often ourselves. For example, in this episode, our guest asked me, Chris, who do you want to be? And it's probably the longest pause in the history of this podcast anyways. Because although I think I know the answer to that question, do I? Where did that come from? Is it really the person I want to be? And this week on the show, we dive into the topic of self. What is your identity? What does it mean? Where did it come from? And perhaps primarily the idea that really your identity is only based on others. I know that sounds like a very provocative statement, but that's what's on the table here. We are talking with Dr. Brian Lowry. He is a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford. He hosts a podcast called Know What You See. He has his PhD from UCLA, his master's from UCLA, and his undergrad, University of Illinois. He is also the author of the new book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. Just the kind of conversation we like having here on Smart People Podcast. So excited you're here. Big announcement or big um, request here. I keep talking about the rebranding we're doing, and we are close to the end. And I'm struggling with redefining the show and making the necessary changes. So I'd love to talk to you. First, I'd like to ask our listeners a few questions. And second, I'd love to actually hop on the phone with a number of you, preferably those who have been listening with any regularity. So one, you can sign up for our newsletter because I'll be reaching out via that. So you can go to our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for that. Or you can just email me at chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com and just say, hey, Chris, happy to you know answer some questions or hop on a call or whatever it is. We can make it as comfortable for you as possible. All right. But I'd love to get to know you. There's no hidden agenda here. I'm really trying to understand what do you want more of, less of, how can we serve you better? And I promise you, I will read every email. 
This is airing on May 22nd. If you're listening in July, still reach out. All right, let's get into it. Our conversation with Brian Lowry about his brand new book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. Enjoy. I don't like to start a show by saying, hey, tell us about your book. So I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to do is I'm going to give you what I believe to be the, uh, the sentence that defines your book. And I want you to tell me how you feel about it. Okay. It's very short. You can't be yourself by yourself. Oh, that's a good one. That's a, I mean, there's a lot. I think there's a, I hope there's a lot of choices for sentences that define the book, but that's a really good one. So the, the basic idea is that um, who you are is constructed by other people. Um, and without other people, you can't be yourself. So if you think of yourself as a man, if you think of yourself as a father or a son, or you think of yourself as a podcaster, none of those things have any meaning without other people. Other people create the meaning that is inherent in those identities. And without those people, though, that part of yourself simply doesn't exist. So you cannot be yourself by yourself. Do you think at the core of it, your book is kind of an exploration of how we are inherently not just social creatures, but social beings that rely on connection with others to even be alive? Yeah, you know, I, I would make a distinction between the way we exist as animals, right? So I assume everyone accepts that we are animals. <laughs> um, so there's a, a pure physical existence, but then there's being human, right? Being a human being. Um, and that I don't think can happen without the presence of other human beings. So you cannot be a human being without other being without other people, but you could be, I mean, you would exist as a, I guess, a physical entity, as an animal, you know, run, running around on the earth. But I don't think that's what most people have in mind when they think of humans. A small but important differentiator is you could exist, but you wouldn't exist in the way a human being longs to exist without others. I would say you would not exist as a human being without others. You would exist as a homo sapien. You would exist as some physical thing, but you wouldn't, a human being requires the presence of other human beings. Okay. You admit in the book and you talk about it, that this could be seen as a pretty radical, oftentimes not just jarring, but divisive opinion, right? With so much of, you want to call it the self-help industry talking about be yourself and your authentic self and who you are is not dependent on others. This is almost the exact opposite of that belief system. 100%. You know what's funny about the book, um, Chris? When I talk to people, people like you, smart people who read a lot of things, there, there's a group of people who are like, yeah, obviously. Because this idea of like social construction is something that if you're you know, a reader of this kind of work, you've heard before. I think that people just don't take it to its logical extreme. People say it and don't mean it. And so what I'm doing in the book is being really serious about what, what does it actually mean when you say that an identity is socially constructed? What's the consequence of that if you take it really seriously? And, you know, the self-help stuff is something else, right? Like that, that is, um, I get it. People are out there. Life is hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people are looking for ways to... I engage it more effectively looking for hacks and I get the self-help industries focus on the, the individual, like the person they're talking to as the sole determinant of how they experience life. But I think almost all serious social science just does not see humans in that way. So on, on the one hand, um, it is very mainstream social science. On the other hand, it's really radical when you examine it very seriously in your own life. You just very eloquently and concisely describe my experience in reading your book. One of the biggest impacts your book had on me was a reinvigoration of the impact I can have on others. Was that a design of this book or just an outcome? Oh, yeah. I think that it was an outcome in the sense that, you know, I start with the idea that 
humans are social and what does that mean? And I, I dig into the science that demonstrates the, come some of the consequences of that. But when you start to explore it and play it out, you just see that, hey, we're being influenced by other people all the time in, in the ways that are deeper than we can truly sometimes understand and grasp. <clears throat> but, and here's your point, what that also means is we're constructing other people. Mm-hmm. Whenever we interact with someone, we are changing that person. Like, what is our responsibility there? Like, what what's the, in that the power in those interactions is something I think we don't take seriously enough. One thing you just said there, if you tell people we are influenced by each other, almost everybody listening will agree. But if you tell people we are constructed by each other, I think many people will disagree, be confused, et cetera. Tell me about the difference. Look, I'll give an example that's like really um, controversial right now. So I hope this is okay with your- Of course your, it is. Let's you. go. Okay, great. Let's that's the way to go. So I think most people think of themselves as male or female, men or women. Like, And now there's, you know, obviously um, there are people who are non-binary. There's all sorts of ways that people can identify themselves <clears throat> in terms of gender. But the vast majority of people still- probably think of themselves as either male or female. And they think of that as like a significant part of who they are, I would assume. I assume you you present as a man to me, the way we've been talking, I assume you see yourself as a man. Is that fair? Yep. yep. All right, great. Yep. And you see that as a big part of who you are and how you relate with others, yes? Absolutely. Okay. You cannot be a man without other people. You have no idea what it means to be a man except from what you've learned in the culture you exist in. If everyone that you interacted with said you weren't a man, you would cease to be a man. That's what I mean by constructing. Like the, that gender identity only exists in relationships you have. It's not inherent in you. You weren't born. This is the, the part that will be sound controversial. You weren't born a man. You became a man. You were born male. I'll, I'll give you like, I'm not denying biology. I want to be right, clear. Right. But that's not the same. That's not what people mean, really. They, they, they're so t- closely tied, they get confused, but you can separate them. What about those that say, I am identifying as non-binary? Are they constructed society? 100%. I, I, here's the thing. Like, I don't, this is, the, this is again, this is the thing can be controversial for a lot of people. You know, some people like it. Some people hate what I'm going to say next. <laughs> if you believe that you can't be yourself by yourself, that includes every component of what it means to be you. By that, I mean, you can't just decide your gender and be it alone. Like you need people to participate in that. And so every time you make a claim about what you are, it's a request for other people to engage you that way. And if they don't, from my perspective, you are not that thing. Hmm. So if you say you're non-binary, I need to understand what that means I need to understand what that means. We're going to, we co-construct the meaning of that. We, in an, in an interaction, you tell me that, I respond to that. And in that moment, if I accept what you're saying, we are deciding what it means to be non-binary in that interaction. And then you just play this out over a long period of time and you get this idea of like, okay, maybe it becomes established in the broader culture. Now, everyone has a sense of what it means. So when you say that, now I know all the things that are associated with that, how I should behave. I know where you should be in the world. What should you, what bathroom should you be using? How you should engage with different people? Like all this stuff is, is developed in the community, right? So these identities are communal property, not the property of individuals. And then you ask to be, you ask to be included in that identity. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. 
No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hims.com/smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hims.com/twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com smart. That's what I was just going to say. I think using gender is a, is, a, is a good one because I can't say it's clear, but we can understand it. So if I met somebody and I really had a long in-depth conversation and they said, I am this, I would have to say, okay, tell me what that means for you. And then they would tell me, and I say, so how would you like me to do X, Y, Z? And in, in that moment, we are essentially constructing their self belief. Yes. Are you constructing themselves in that? I would their self, you're constructing that moment with them. Yes. And here's the thing that's, this is like, this example is, um, I hope clearer, but it's, it's hard the, the bigger point I want to make is that you're doing that all the time with everybody. You just don't see it that way. I imagine you believe there is deep value in exploring this, understanding it. What do you believe that is? So what I, what I think happens if you take this seriously is you can have a deeper understanding of other people and you gain possibly more compassion for yourself. And at a, at a more societal level, at a higher level, I think it changes how we think about a, a number of conversations. I'll give you an example that's not like we've been focusing really tightly on the self, but I'm going to expand now. The conversation about immigration in the United States right now is fraught for a variety of reasons. One of the things that's almost certainly happening based on research is that there's a challenge to what it means to be American, that people are afraid that the idea of American is being shifted by immigration. Now, if you define yourself as an American, think about the challenge that poses to your sense of self and more importantly, to the relationships that are based on being an American. Like, what does it mean to you to be American? And if that is shifting, it's going to be a little complicated. I mean, I'll get now take it back to gender to bring this down and you can then maybe make the connection between immigration and gender. Okay. When people start to challenge the gender binary. They're like, yeah, I, I know if I told you I was a woman, even though I look the way I look, I dress the way I dress, I sound like I, how I sound, that will disrupt your understanding of what it means to be a man. Now, what if that affects how you understand yourself as a man and the relationships you have? You could have a serious problem with me messing, playing around, as you might see it, with your idea of what it means to be a man changing other people's idea of what it means to be a man, trying to change the cultural idea of what it means to be a man. What is that going to mean for you if you go through your life managing your relationships as a quote-unquote man? 
And that disruption is problematic, I think. I was just about to say, do you think that's why people have an issue with these things, whether it be the gender issues or immigration, is because it forces them to not only question the beliefs they have about themselves, but then it also forces them to question how they go about living. Because one of the things that I have struggled with, with the gender discussion, is it takes a pretty black and white reality and it muddies it, which makes things more difficult, more annoying, more stressful. 100%. This is kind of the point I'm making. This is, it's where politics becomes personal, right? So these discussions about gender, you can think of them as political discussions. But once you start changing, fiddling with the communal property of identity, because remember early on, I said that these identities are communal property. We have constructed what it means to be a man or a woman. And that, now that allows individuals to engage with that and other people f- from that shared understanding, right? When I'm a man, I go out, I know how people are going to respond to me as a man, and I can navigate the world in that way, develop relationships based on that. Once you start playing with that or, or fiddling with it, it provide, it creates a problem for me potentially. And that's where the political of this conversation about how should people be able to identify and gender non-binary, which I just should say, like, I'm on board with people identifying and trying being comfortable who they are. And I would support that. But it also is the case that it does affect other people, right? It's not just the person who's identifying that way. It's a, a shift that matters for people. Mm-hmm. Well, and you just said something there again that I wanted to get into. You said it does affect other people. And I think this is one of the issues with the idea of we can all just be ourselves. Like, don't worry about me, be yourself type thing is it ignores the impact that we do have on each other. I often think people say that, okay, don't worry about me, deal with yourself. And then somebody says, but we operate in a society. The next response is, well, now you're being selfish or you're being racist, sexist, whatever the ist is, we're judged for having the belief that we all impact each other because we're saying, why can't you just stay in your lane, essentially? Yeah. Like, why why can't you just let me be and do your own thing? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know why this needs to be said, but apparently it does. (laughs) (laughs) I like the start of this. (laughs) It's going to be a very simple statement. Yeah. We exist in a society. Right. I, I don't, I, it seems, I don't know where this went off the rails, but it seems insane to me that people honestly believe their outcomes in life and who they are is somehow just magically a product of them. It's insanity. And here's the thing no one really believes it. Like if you have kids, it sounds like you have kids. Yeah, I do. You, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know that those kids were born. It's like they're, they're your kids. Is like who knows, right? They're your kids. That's what it is. Yep. But the fact that your kids is going to change their lives in ways that have nothing to do with what they did, what they produced, or who they thought they were. You're going to help them understand who they are. You're going to construct them, and you probably, as a parent, see it that way. Of course, they'll have their temperaments, and they'll you know have their ways of being in the world that you can't change, but. My guess is most parents feel responsibility for their kids because they see they affect them. I don't understand then how anyone can look at the world and be like, yeah, I just do it on my own. It's just me out here. That's such a great point. Why are we so quick to recognize the impact we have on our closest sphere and then often very quick to remove the impact we have on anyone outside of that? How is that line that clear? Where did it get that clear? You should tell me, Chris. I don't know. I know. Well, you know what you're making me realize? Obviously, this podcast is global. I bet there are people in different countries who who are going, what are you all talking about? (laughs) Who thinks this way? Is this a pretty Western slash American idea? A significant part of this is like very Western. Um, But, you know, I'm not sure all of it is. I think that human beings might be unable to break the illusion, completely break the illusion of individuality. I could be wrong about that, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm just not sure that it's, that, that if you can, it might take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do think there are very different ways of thinking about individuals' relationship to society. And I think that changes a lot depending on the culture you're in. 
What does this mean for autonomy, individuality, self-discovery? Like, how can I discover myself if myself is continually changing based on the relationships around me? Well, it just sounds like you answered it. Like, the discovery is the fluidity, mm. perhaps. Um, and you know, the other thing, uh, I, I often end up getting really abstract and philosophical. That's cool. I can't, that's... I can't tell if that's good or bad, but whatever. It's both. <laughs> <laughs> I think in writing this and talking about it, sometimes it's really hard. In part because I don't even know if we have, if I have, the language to fully capture the complexity of what we're talking about, because you still have to reference a you and an I, and uh, and I'm saying all that is plural, but I don't know that I have a way of. But that I mean, like I am a lot of people, but I I still have this experience when I go through the world. I think about it just like everyone else. It's like me and in my head doing stuff. I just don't think that's true, but it feels that way to me. And so it's hard for me sometimes to explain in, in really clear terms what it means to be a construction of other people. And so when you ask about self-discovery, that's a great example of, yeah, you. Dis what I'm saying is you discover fluidity, but who is the you I'm talking about exactly? I was going to follow <laughs> up with this, right? And And like, I love this. So- I am starting to come around to this idea that my experience is impacted, influenced, modified, constructed by those that I'm around, those that I engage with, the environments that I'm in. But what about the, the being doing that modification? Can't that be me, right? So the person who is flexing in the environments, whatever is at that core, we want to call it the soul, can that be the self? And is that immutable? This is where I, I, I um, deny the existence of a soul in that way. I'm very, and I, I, I don't know if people know the term essentialist. I'm anti-essentialist, meaning that there's no inherent you that's like some, some core of you. Like, of course, there's like biological realities that's true, but I don't think that's what people mean. I think they mean what you were saying, like a soul. And like, I don't know what that is. Maybe one exists. If it does, I don't know what it is. So if somebody wants to like explain it to me, that's fine. But uh, so I, you know, this is one of those things where it might be something that we can cognitively comprehend, but we'll never have an intuition for. And so I'll give you another example from hard science, right? So, um, Physicists understand and know, and you know something about quantum mechanics. How the how the very you know subatomic, um, the world works at a subatomic level. Almost no one has an intuition for it because it just doesn't match what we can just understand in a in an intuitive way about the world. The math it tells you, like you know the math, you don't just know the subatomic world. What if? part of the human experience is like that. That it's just intuitively not compelling. Like you just cannot intuitively hold on to it. But when you look at the research, when you examine it in a reasoned way, you see a reality that's not the reality that you experience or not your, at the risk of using another big, big word, not doesn't match your phenomenology. It doesn't match the way, the, the way you just grasp and feel the world. But what if it's true? and you just don't feel it, what would that look like? Let me try and articulate. I think you said anti-essentialist. Anti-essentialist, yeah. Okay. Would that be something like, it's possible that human beings, we are a biological phenomenon, but almost blank slate. There isn't anything else other than those biological things occurring. And then as we develop consciousness or whatever we want to call it, it is then modified based on the environment continuously. And then I would say, I'm going to put two things out that without thinking I believe in. One is I would imagine we do that for the propagation of the species. It is a well-crafted part of evolution, which is, hey, these people got to work together. So let's make that part of their identity. The second part being the reason it's not intuitive is because 
if what you and I are talking about was intuitive, is that more work than necessary to propagate the species, right? Like, do we need to have that intuition or does it just cause more problems than it's worth? I think that's right. You know, and there's a, say a, a psychologist, a cognitive psychologist, Donald Hoffman. I don't know if you know of him. I don't. You, you, you might be interested in stuff. He, he talks about um, reality. He's like, um, evolution has not pushed us to see reality clearly. It's pushed us to see the world in a way that's useful for our survival. And that almost, and the chance that that is, that reflects the true underlying reality is slim. Now I'm definitely going to check him out. One yeah, guest on here, out. he gave me this analogy of, we are the controllers of a submarine. And if you think about that, the controller never touches the water, right? Never touches outside of the submarine, but has a lot of opinions about it. And it's all based on the instruments it is looking through, it is feeling through. And if you keep going down with that analogy, it's quite fascinating. And I think it aligns almost entirely with what you just mentioned. So yeah, so I'll give you another analogy. The one that Donald Hoffman uses, okay. he talks about is think about a computer. It's like you and there's a user interface. You work with that and you like drag a file to the garbage when you want to erase it. There's no garbage. There's no file you're dragging. None of those things are are like the way it, the reality of the machine is operating, but it, it helps you engage with the machine. And he's saying, like, yeah, we have a user interface for the world. And you we behave as if that user interface reflects the underlying reality of the world. And he's like, it's probably more akin to the way the computer is like you don't you don't understand the underlying reality of the world. You just are engaging with the user interface. What would be cool about this theory, and I'm sure he probably talks about it, is maybe that's a large part of our evolution is trying to understand that reality more and more. I think so. And I, and I guess when we talk about the self, one, thing, one of the things that I find sometimes frustrating when you talk about the self is people expect it to be intuitively compelling. Like all the questions about like, how does this fit with how I experience things? I'm like, I don't know. And maybe it doesn't. That doesn't mean it's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Wait a (laughs) second. Yes. You know, it's like if I were to, when I talk about physics, people, you know, there's this, there's this reality that time moves differently as you move away from the earth. So as you go up, time moves. Yeah. I, I think it moves. Don't quote me on this, but I think it moves more quickly higher than lower. Okay. Uh, it could be the other way around, but anyway, there's differences. And in fact, physicists can demonstrate the difference between time moving like at a table than on the floor. Like you can show it. Wow. And people, exactly. That's people's reaction. Wow. They're not like, that's not true. They're like, wow. Yeah. If I tell you something about yourself, that's like, that sounds crazy. You're like, that's not right. You're <laughs> 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 not like, wow, really? You're yeah. Like, nah. That's that's not how it feels to me at all. That can't. Yeah. Be. <laughs> well, if it shakes, yeah, like we were talking about, if it shakes the, you know, your system up. Here's what I want to start moving into a little bit: how we can leverage this information to live our lives better. And I'll kick us off with one that I read about, but I don't quite understand yet. And I would love for you to help me out. You say in the book, the biggest determinant of who you are is where you are. And that line really hit me deep because a large part of what I call anxiety in my life is when I feel that I'm forced to be in situations, I feel I have to be somebody that I don't want to be. The easiest example is I'll never forget this. You know, my first day of my first job, I remember saying this to, to my parents later on that night. I said, I feel like an alien there. And really what I'm now realizing I was feeling like is I, I have to be a professional now. And I just didn't like it because I had been a kid in my mind. First of all, explain this idea to us that the biggest determinant of who you are is where you are. And then what can we do with that information to maybe give us compassion or allow us to excel or in your mind? Yeah. So um, what I mean by that is the social social situations you're in, like the people you're around, if you accept that like the self is socially constructed, then the people you're around are going to be the biggest determinant of who you are, right? That's going to determine who you are, um, certainly in, in that situation. So the where, I, I, it's like I'm playing with it a little bit. I mean it both in terms of physical location, but more what I really mean is like the, the social environment that you're in. And people get this, right? Like 
Um, in AA, it's like, don't go to places where you used to drink, right? It's just like you, you're around those people. It's going to be hard to not be the person you were when you were around those people in those places. So there's, I think there's a general understa- understanding of, of that. And, and what to do with it is, I'm going to like take it a, a slightly different direction. I think people, because they believe that who they are is just in, inherent in them and they take it everywhere they go, underestimate how much they can be affected by changing their social location. And I think people sometimes, for example, depressed people tend to avoid other people. And one of the things that you would be told is like, try to find places that people interact with that like shift your your mood. That's one of the things you can do. Um, I think when people are in they're anxious or they're nervous, sometimes their response is to like try to go inside to fix it. It's like, that's probably a mistake, right? Like you, yes, you can examine your your perceptions of others and your thoughts, but you probably also need different spaces to exist in that will probably have a, a positive effect. Okay. All right. We're staying here for a minute. <laughs> I mean, we're staying here. What then do you say to, to all of the recommendations, which are, if you have to change your social location to change your emotion, then you are just being weak. You should be able to overcome that emotion. I don't, that, that overcome emotion, that seems crazy to me. I'm just going to say, let me just start there. I don't, you know, I don't, I, and I'll, I'll be, let me just be very clear. I am not a clinician. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. so but, I don't, I don't, don't, no one should take this advice. Somewhat of an expert. So, okay. I, take, I think about this. Yes. And I, I read things. Um, <laughs> I've been studying psychology for a little while. About yeah, years, exactly. A little while. Well, don't worry. Um, we're going to give your bio in the intro because you are now downplaying it. Okay. We have experts only on this podcast. Okay. Um, I don't, there are people who study emotion and I assume if you haven't, you should have someone on that talks about emotion. It's fascinating. Um, there's the, like, how do you evaluate a situation that can produce the emotion, right? It's your, they would call appraisal, right? How do you appraise a situation? But overcoming an emotion, I don't know what that means. I think when I talk to people, I do think that you should separate the emotional experience from the behavior that must follow. I think that's a, but that's not overcoming anything. And I think that your emotional experience, because it's tied to the way you understand what's happening. So you could, two people could have the same experience. One person could get mad about it. The other person could be completely unmoved by it. Like, so it's not, the emotion is not about the situation. It's about your experience of it, your understanding of it, right? Yes, um, 100%. And, right. And if you change your location, like how you understand situations will shift. And so it will change your emotional response to the same things because you will understand them differently because you will be different, not because the situation will be. What if my response to that is, if, if I want to improve my experience, my internal experience, the emotions I'm experiencing, if I do that through changing my social location, I am giving up my authority, autonomy over my emotions, right? I'm saying that I am dependent on the situation as opposed to being reliant on my ability to handle the situation or interpret it the way I would like. No, I just think you're, it's like, what's the mechanism for interpreting it the way you would like? You think it's somehow in your head that you think like, I can just decide to interpret it differently. Yes, there you go. Maybe, maybe, but I'm saying that almost certainly if you put yourself in a different situation, you will interpret it differently. I don't know better. I'm not, just to be clear, it could be worse. Like you have to be thoughtful, but when you're thinking of yourself as a husband or father, the way you experience certain things will be different than when you're thinking of yourself as a podcaster. Or when you were thinking of yourself as an alien in a in a suit, right? Like that movement through your life will change how you respond to different aspects of your life or different situations. And what I'm saying is, once you know that's true, you could decide to use that. It's a tool that you like. You are using that to manage your experience of the world. Not only do I agree, I think, but I want to agree, and I want it to be the answer. And here's why: it seems easier. So if I'm in a tough tough situation, if I go to an, an office building that causes a lot of feelings of anxiety, and then there's another office building that I know does not cause those feelings, it is easier for me to just go to the other office than to deal with the emotion in the one that causes anxiety. Yeah, 
That's true. I mean, you can also do things like here's an example of like changing where you are. This is a, I just thought of this now. I don't don't take it too seriously. Yeah, sure. So you know, if you're going to the office building where you feel uncomfortable, maybe this is you you put on a suit and tie. People engage with you differently. You're a different person in that situation. You know, the physical situation is the same. You have changed the nature of the social situation, and maybe you don't feel the same kind of anxiety. Not because it's not like the suit and tie made the anxiety go away. It shifted how people engage with you, which shifted who you were, which changed the experience. So I think there's all sorts. I think people, when I say where, this is why you have to understand that term very broadly, right? It's like where, by where I mean the social situation, which often is hugely influenced, obviously, by the physical location, but that's not the only thing that influences the social location. When I walk into a room as a professor, it's different than I walk, not walk into the room just as a black guy. That's a different social situation. I'm in different places and I will have different experiences of those places. Right. There's part of this that makes me think of the idea of use your sensations, experiences, emotions as a guide to where you want to be, which I do agree with. Is that something you talk about or have thought about? Yeah, I don't really talk about it that much, but I do think there's information in emotion for sure. And you can, you can pay attention to that. I, just, I think that people sometimes, this is just my opinion. And again, I'm not an emotions researcher, but I think as a human being, I think that people sometimes interpret emotions as commands as opposed to information, right? To be, to be acted on. Um, and so if you go into a situation and you feel anxious, I think there's informa- there's certainly information in that. And what I'm pointing to is you can respond to that by doing things that change how other people understand you. You can also leave that situation, but you can if you change how people understand you in that situation, it's going to change you in a way that will probably shift your experience. And that gets back to the idea of how we are both, we are all imparting awareness and, and opinions on each other, right? We are constructing each other in real time. 100%. And like, I'll, I'll give you an example, and this is a research example. It's like something I did really, really early in, in my career. Um, you you can measure, let's call it associations with race at a non-conscious level. I think people are now, like now that's common and it's implicit bias or whatever. That's the term that people use now. At the time, this was not in the public conversation when I was doing this. This is in the late 90s. Um, and, and people thought, including scientists, that they couldn't change very quickly because these associations are just out in the environment. We're just we're just immersed in these associations. They they become a part of how we see the world, and you can't change them easily for that reason. They don't move around very much. And what we did is we brought in people to a a room, and we had either a black person or a white person in front of the room, and then we measured their attitudes. And it turned out it mattered who was standing in front of the room. And the question was, why did it matter? Like when there was a black person standing in front of the room, people had lower levels of implicit you know, associations, negative associations with race than when black people, than when a white person standing in front of the room. So what we did is then we said, okay, we don't think it's the person. We think it's what you think the person thinks. So then we put on, instead of a black and white person, we had them wear a t-shirt that said racism or nothing on it. And so even when a white person had on a racism t-shirt, people's um, associations with black people became more positive. Now they didn't know what was happening. The participants, the people that that did the study, did not understand that we were even measuring their associations with race. Didn't even know. And they shifted. Now, why is that relevant here? In that situation, when you're engaging with someone who believes something, what you believe shifts towards that other person without you even knowing it. It shifts to what you think that person believes, and you don't even know what's happening. Like, And if you think you are your beliefs... Who you are is changing as a function of what you believe that other person believes, right? And so there's these ways in which we are influencing each other that are deep and beyond even our conscious awareness, below the threshold of our conscious awareness. And so if I can shift how you think about me, that is going to change how you interact with me. And it's going to change how I feel about myself or how I experience that moment. And so, and this is a long way of getting to, like, there's all these opportunities to change how people are 
thinking about you, experiencing you that will shift how you experience yourself. If our goal is to have positive impact in the world and on ourselves, how do you think we can leverage that knowledge? Good question. Chris, who do you want to be? Who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. I want to be, I, I do. I want to be somebody who uh, allows others to better enjoy their time on this planet. Mm-hmm. And how do you have people engage with you in that way? I, um, I do. I try to influence the situation in a way where they feel they can be more at ease. They can be more open. They can be more curious and less guarded. Mm. So you think what you do can make other people be different? I do. Yeah, that, that's it. That's all there is. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I mean, and other people are doing, and understand that other people are doing that to you. Right. Like, that, that, I mean, there's, in some ways, it's not, I don't, I don't know, it's not really, it's profound, but on some level, easy to understand when you think of it that way. It's like, right now, we are constructing each other. We're having this interaction, who you are in this moment is being shaped by me and who I am is being shaped by you. And that's how we are constantly living lives, our lives. And I'll leave this and I'll be influenced by you in some way. And I hope that you'll be influenced by me. And I know that you want to influence your listeners. Yep. Like, what does that even mean? What, how could that be? Like, how could that be if you're not constructing who they are, but how you engage with them? Number one, I don't think we act like that on a moment by moment basis. I don't think we are consciously aware of it. I think if we were, we would be better as a society. And I think to your point, we also don't recognize the depths of it. I was actually going to ask this question. So how are we, how are we shaping each other in this moment? You have a calming, slower, but warm affect, uh, you know, that's just your style, right? It's uh, thoughtful. It, it appears non-judgmental. So you know what I do? I slow down. I allow myself to be okay with making some quote unquote mistakes and be more thoughtful, which I think I've actually been thinking about this as we're going leads to a deeper conversation, if you will. My point is it is a palpable internally recognizable impact. And that's, this is virtual. This is, I can only see your neck up, you know? (laughs) So imagine what's happening to us on a daily basis with, thousands of people around us and in 3d mm-hmm. and i guess and i love what you, what you said that um it's like it's a this is happening all the time and you could use it to make the world a better place i know that that's something that is important to you as at least as you stated it to me and i think people don't take enough responsibility for that like you, you see people, you see this all the time. Like you go out, you're getting coffee and somebody's treating somebody like the barista, you know, not nicely. Like why? <laughs> I mean, like, yes. you know, I mean, it's, if you take it seriously and it is simple when you think about it, like what would that mean about how you should behave? And if everyone took it seriously, like I, I think, and I, I would hope the world would be a nicer, better place that we would take more responsibility for each other. It's not like all our problems would magically go away and it becomes a utopia, but I, I just think there would be a different world if people really understood the impact they were having on other people when they engaged with them. Um, if they were thoughtful about who they wanted to be in a situation and what that meant about who they were creating. And when you have a fight, like you are a participant in that. Like, what does that mean to you? Like, so you can think, you're asking like, what do you do with this? Like next time you have disagreement with your spouse, like how much of that is you and how much of that is them, right? It's easy to say like they, it's, it's someone else. And if you believe in this co-construction and, and this is an obvious thing, like this is a version of it takes two to tango, which is a little bit deeper, which is like, no, you are constructing the person you're fighting with. Like that's a different way to think about it. It is. And I think, again, that's something we kind of know, right? If somebody tries to make a point and you yell at them, they are going to almost certainly respond differently than if you say, hmm, good point. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. and this gets back to one of my original points, which is the the scapegoat we use is you should be able to control yourself or you you shouldn't let me impact you. What I do should not change you that much. 
So whose role is it? Is it ours to modify modify our behavior accordingly, or is it yours to um, recognize you are causing that reaction in me? When you're playing a game with two people, and let's say it doesn't matter what the game is, chess, tennis, doesn't matter. Think of any game with two people. Who's responsible for the quality of that game? Right. It's both. Yeah. There's, there's no there's no way to have a high quality game and say like it's one person. It's just not. I mean, you're, you're constructing like that's a way of thinking about you're constructing something together. Like, so it's not I don't know. It's hard to say like, whose responsibility is it? It's like a joint responsibility, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a common phrase that people give motivationally. Hey, just mm-hmm. be yourself. Just be yourself and it'll be fine. <laughs> I have it written down in all caps. I can't let you go without that. Is that bad advice? Um, tell me what that advice means first, and I'll tell you if it's bad. Don't try to change your actions based on what you think others want from you. That's terrible advice. I think it's obviously terrible <laughs> advice. I don't even understand the question. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you, right? Here's the thing. Essentially, being that your book is on self. What is your interpretation of that? Um, I don't, I don't, this is what I was asking. Like, to me, that's all you can be is yourself in any given moment. I don't even know what the other options are. So I think like, as you described it, I think that's terrible advice. And I get the, I get that description, but really don't respond to other people, but don't respond to their needs. Don't respond to their emotions. Don't try to connect. Like, what are we talking about? Like, that's insanity. Um, And I think people just, don't explore those kind of, I don't know, suggestions or advice. They just don't think about it very hard. And you think about it just a little bit, like it doesn't take long to see, like either it, either it doesn't make sense or it's probably really bad. You said something earlier I wrote down, which was, I think this allows us give ourselves more compassion. And I was going to ask what you meant by that. And I still want to know, but I'll, I'll give you my interpretation right here, which is if I go on a, let's say I'm, I'm 16, I'm going on a first date. And I'm nervous. And my parents say, hey, just be yourself. My interpretation, which I, I think is, is, is probably pretty common, would be, let's say I go, I love comic books. And the date goes, oh my God, those are for nerds. If your only goal is to get that person to like you, then you can say, I'm just kidding. I don't like them. I wanted to see where you were, right? But if your goal is to genuinely connect with somebody who you have similarities with, then you just use that information as opposed to letting it bring you down. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of ways to think about compassion in that example. So first, I would say, like at some point, other people influence you to like comics. You didn't just come out of the womb liking comics. You like comics because somebody else liked comics and you wanted to connect to them or you wanted to be a part of something. So I don't know why it's somehow more yourself to like comics than to say you don't like comics when someone else says they don't like, you know, um, so that's first. Like, so you, if you thought about it that way, there would be compassion in that. You wouldn't be like, why well, am I not being myself? And what am I doing? Like, you just be like, this is the nature of self, right? Like I like comics in this situation with these people and in this situation, and you know, I, in this engagement, maybe I don't want to like comics or I don't, and that's okay. So that if you thought about it that way, like, no big deal. Like no reason to go home and be like, why did I lie about liking comics? I don't know. Cause you, that, that assumes a true self, like my true self likes comics. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, so that's, that's one way to be compassionate. Like you just, you, you went with the flow. The other way is just to say like, in that situation, like, you know, I don't know why I like comics. Mm-hmm. Maybe cause if you said to the date, like, she's like, that's nerd. I'm like, you know, well, my dad was really in the comics and I spent a lot of time with my dad. I, I kind of like comics. And and maybe she's like, oh, okay. Or maybe she's like, you know, screw your dad. And then you're like, all right, screw you. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll I, I tell you. But look, like this is why I, I, I keep just, and I promise I'll let you go, but I keep finding questions <laughs> to ask. And I, because even that example, you talking about, there's a reason you like comics. A lot of people will say, but the reason I want to defend that is because that's who I am. And really, that's a, a lot of that's at the core of what you're saying. It's like, well, what is that? Who is that? How easy is that changed? 
if that's who you are, I can put you in a situation where you're not that person. So how much of a core is it? 100%. And what I would say is like to say that's who I am, what you're holding on to, I'd argue is a relationship you just, or some set of relationships. You just don't, I can't identify them, right? Like again, loving of comics didn't come from nowhere, right? Like, and you probably share that love with someone. And I would argue that's probably more what you're defending than comics. What you're defending is like the relationships that that love is embedded in. And then that way, what you're defending is yourself. You know how so many people believe in like values-based decision-making? I'm sure you've heard of that, right? I was kind of just, as you were talking about that, going, what are my values? And I have a sense of, I'm written them down. Where did they come from and why are they important? And a, a lot, maybe all, are in some way values shaped on what I believe is valuable in a society, which just accentuates your point. One thing to, I think, keep in mind is as we recommend this book and we talk about it is, you know, us being shaped by others, it can be one-on-one or, and we've said many times, it can be one-on-millions or billions, right? And, and that is at the base of this. Yeah, it's like amazing. We're social animals and we all, it's easiest to think about it and talk about it in terms of like individual relationships, but we exist in communities, right? That shape and define us. Um, and, and those communities have grown, right? They include nations now. And I say this in, in one of the chapters in the book that you can feel connected to millions, billions of people who you will never meet. Like that is an amazing thing. And people can get really worked up about those, the connections and who they are defined by these billions of people they will never meet, right? It's just, it, when you think of it that way, it's like really incredible. That's a good point. The capacity, you know? Brian, this is awesome stuff, man. Is this what you guys do at Stanford? You just, you know, you just <laughs> opine on self? Like, because that, that is exactly what I would imagine if I went to Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that this is what, I wouldn't say this is what we do. It's certainly what I do a lot of the time these days, though. <laughs> Which is funny, by the way. I just have to say, like, it's, I, I love the title. The title is like, it's selfless. Yeah. Right? The social creation of you. But it's so funny because you, it's selfless is the title. And all we do is talk about, about self. Is that common or was that my bad? <laughs> no, no, no. That's common. That's what every, that every conversation is That's about. That's the goal. Self. Yeah. And, you know, and um, yeah, like, what does it mean? What is, what is that concept of, what do I mean by selfless? I don't mean like, you know, um, generous. I just mean that like this essential self, as we discussed it, like this, that you are this core soul is like, I just don't think that's true. And that's what I mean by selfless. Like you certainly have a self. But the self that you have is probably not the one that you are, that you believe you do it, that you're experiencing. That's a great place to end it. Brian, you know, I really appreciate it. The book, I have it right here, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. If you enjoyed this conversation, imagine a a more articulate version. That is the book. And mostly because of me trying to fumble my way through it. But Brian, you also have a podcast where you discuss just as in-depth ideas here. Tell us where that is, um, where else we can find you. Yeah, so um, the podcast is called Know What You See. So it's K-N-O-W, What You See. And you can see it on anywhere you get your podcast, but also there's a website, knowwhatyousee.com, that has other things too. So I do an open webinar. It's a class at Stanford that's open to the public. Um, You can go on... They're on YouTube, the videos, they're interviews with um, really interesting um, people. And we um, discuss the last season, we're talking about people implanted in the information era. So we talk about things like AI. Um, We talk about climate change. We talk about all sorts of things that are related to things going on right now. And an example of guests, like I think my second one this season was Eric Schmidt. We talked to Timnit Gabru, who was used to be at Google in the AI ethics group. Um, So really, I think think the conversations are really interesting. So there's the podcast and there's also, it's called Leadership for Society. So there's a class open to the public. People can check that out. That's Um, the 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 class? That's two different classes or is that the class? No. So there's the Leadership for Society is the class. Um, the, the podcast is separate. So there's like a straight podcast, Know What You See. 
Um, and then obviously the book is going to be released on the 28th. Maybe I assume that it's already released. It will be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then on the, and if you go to the website, knowwhatyouc.com, like my writings and other things are up there. So that's how you can keep track of me. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Lowry, PhD. I love it. We will link to all that incredible stuff, Brian. Really appreciate you bringing this knowledge to the show. I really appreciate it, Chris. And thanks for all the questions. And thanks for reading and checking out the book. I really appreciate it. This week's guest was Brian Lowry. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Brian's book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You, can be found wherever books are sold. And now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.